Well, good morning, Sagemont. Thank you for coming today. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 22. We're continuing through the text today. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 22. Last week, we looked at 1 Peter 1, 21, where Peter talked that if we said that if we put our faith and our hope in God, that that's gonna radically change the way that we interact with the world, that we don't have to respond to a world going mad with fear, with bitterness and anger, but our faith and hope are in Jesus, and so that changes everything. But today, he's gonna show us that as believers who put their faith and hope in God, and I want you to hear this, That if we do that, that's gonna radically change the way we interact with each other in the church. Now, before we look at the text, I wanna read one verse to you. You don't have to turn there. I just want you to listen. I wanna ask you a simple question. It's Ephesians 4.31. Paul says, let all bitterness, let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So here's a simple question, Sagemont, does that describe you? Those verses describe the way you interact with people. Now here's why I asked that question this morning, because in my time as a pastor of the local church, I have met hands down, um, some of the most kindest, most tender-hearting, most loving, and most forgiving people I've ever personally met. And at the same time, as pastor of a local church, I've met some of the meanest, some of the most hard-hearted, some of the most unforgiving people that I've ever personally met. And that's concerning to me. It ought to be concerning to all of us because what Peter's gonna show us today is that one of the primary purposes of your salvation is to love. And what he's also gonna show us is that one of the primary evidences of your salvation is that you are gonna be a person of love. So as we go through the text today, I I want you to evaluate, do I see this in my life? Am, am, Am I a person of love? Am I a person of forgiveness? Am I a person of kindness? And if you don't see that, I want you to evaluate why so that we can be the people that God told us we were gonna be if in fact we've received the love of God in our lives. So let's read this together, 1 Peter 1, 22. Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And in those two verses, Peter just told us three things. That's what we're gonna look at today. He said three things. Number one, he talked about how we received our salvation. That's the first part of the sentence, how we received our, our salvation. Second thing, he shows us why we received our salvation. He's gonna tell us the purpose of our salvation. And the third thing he tells us, is that love is the evidence of our salvation. And so let's look at the first thing that Peter tells us, number one, how we received our salvation. 
So 1 Peter 1, 21, look at the first part of that sentence. Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So again, Peter's beginning the sentence, he's telling us how we were saved, and he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now at first glance, it sort of looks like Peter is saying that we're somehow saved by our works, but it's not what he's saying. It's important to understand that Peter is saying that He's not saying that you purified your soul by your obedience to the truth. He's saying God purified your soul by your obedience to the truth. And so what truth is he talking about? It's very simple. He's talking about the truth of the gospel, that when you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and he forgived you of, of your sins. That's the gospel. So Peter says, this is how you were saved. You obeyed the truth of the gospel and then God purified your soul. Now, if I were to ask you the question, if I were to ask you the question, why did God save you? Why did God save you? How would you answer that question? Like seriously, if we were talking, we were hanging out, we were having coffee, and I said, I want you to articulate the top four or five reasons of why God offered you salvation. What would you say? How would you answer that question? I think a lot of us would answer that question by saying, well, he saved me so that I could know him. He saved me so that I could worship him. <clears throat> We'd probably say he saved me so that I could serve him and, and make his name known throughout the world. And I think a big chunk of us would say, he saved me because he loves me. And Sage Month, those would all be true statements, 100% true. <clears throat> but here's the question. How many of you would answer the question this way? He saved me so that I could love other people. He saved me so that I could love other people. I'd, I'd venture to guess that a lot of us, that would not make our list. Well, what Peter again is about to tell us is that one of the primary reasons that God purified your soul is so that you would be a person that loves the people around you in your life. And so let's look at number two here in light of that. Peter's gonna talk about why we received our salvation. Why we received our salvation. Let's read it. First Peter 1 Peter 1.21. Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, look what he says next. He says, for a sincere brotherly love. Now church, the scripture could not be any clearer whatsoever. He says, you were saved because you trusted in the gospel, God purified your soul, and then Peter says he did that for a sincere brotherly love, okay? In other words, what Peter just said is that God demonstrated his love for you so that you could demonstrate love towards other people, <clears throat> all right? Seems pretty straightforward. There's a couple of distinctions uh, here that Peter makes in this phrase that's important for us to understand when he says, God saved us for a sincere brotherly love. Let's read it. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Let's look at that word sincere. Because that shows us sort of what our love is supposed to look like, how it's defined. Well, the word sincere comes from a Greek word, anapokriton. And it's a word that means genuine. It's a word that means real. And so his point is that we're saved so that we can demonstrate a sincere brotherly love 
And his point is that our love for other people should not just be a profession of love. It's more than words. And that our, our love towards other people is not just supposed to be a feeling. We're not just a, 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 that, that, that the sincere love is more than words, it's more than a feeling, but it's a kind of love that, that actually is real, it's sincere, and it gets lived out through your life. Okay? Now, go ahead and turn with me real quick. John chapter 13, verse 34. So I want to show you what Jesus says this sincere love actually looks like when we live it out. In John 13, 34, Jesus is speaking. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. It's an interesting thing that he just said. I think when he said that, people's jaws would have dropped. Because he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you. Now, why does he say a new commandment I give to you? Because there was an old commandment. And what was the old commandment? The old commandment was I want you to love one another as you love yourself. Now, that's a pretty lofty thing to ask. That's a big deal. You know why? Because we love ourselves quite a bit. But Jesus says, I want you to take it to a whole new level. I want your love as a believer to take it to a whole new level. I want you to love other people the way that I loved you. Now, that begs the question, how did he love us? How did Jesus love us? Well, we could talk for the whole rest of the sermon about all the ways Jesus loved us, but if you force me to choose one verse that I think really does articulate what the kind of love Jesus loved us with, I would choose Philippians 2, 3, 4, and 5. Let me read it to you. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition. It's a strong statement. Paul keeps using these words like all and nothing. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, says that is how Jesus loved you. That is what sincere love looks like. Jesus did nothing from selfish ambition. He did everything in humility. He considered others more significant than himself. He didn't look to his own interest. He looked to the interest of others. And and what Peter is saying today is this is how Jesus loved you. And that's what sincere love looks like is when you go out the doors, rather actually gonna find out in the doors and you love people that way. Now, there's one more distinction in this verse here that I want us to look at. Look at one more time, 1 Peter 1.22. Peter says, having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. What's he talking about when he says brotherly love? Is he just waxing eloquent here, using an adjective? What does he mean by the word brotherly? Well, I looked it up, and a lot of translations translate it this way, and I think those other translations are right. But a better way to translate that phrase would be this, that you were saved for a sincere love for the brethren. God saved you for a sincere love for the brethren. Now, who are the brethren? Who Who are the people that we're supposed to be loving sincerely the way that Jesus loved us? Are those just random people that we meet? Are those lost people? Who are these people we're supposed to be loving sincerely? Well, guys, the... Brethren 
are the people of the church. That's what brethren means. The brethren are your brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? So that doesn't mean that we don't love lost people. But what it does mean is that the primary call in our lives in regards to love deals with the people that are your brothers and sisters in Christ, the people within the church. And so here's the thing. Here's the question that's really important that we get. Why does Peter make this distinction that God saved us, one of the primary purposes and reasons he saved us was so that we could love and demonstrate Christ-like love specifically to people inside the church. Why is that so important? Well, Jesus actually tells us why you and I loving each other so sincerely matters. Back to John 13, 34. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now look at verse 35, this is key. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And guys, that's simple. And it's a profound truth that you and I probably don't think about very often, but what Jesus just said is that one of the greatest evangelistic tools that we have is when we love people inside the church. That one of the greatest evangelistic tools that we have to win people outside the doors of the church to Christ is when we love each other inside the church. And Jesus' point there is that when people that are not believers, they're supposed to be able to look at us they're supposed to see the way that we live, to see the way they love, and we love each other so well that we demonstrate the love of Christ so well that when they see that kind of love, they realize, man, I don't have that in my life, and they're attracted to it like a moth to the flame, and it brings them and draws them to the person of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about it, that if that's true, and it is, that our love for one another in the church is one of the primary things that draws people outside the church to Jesus. I was thinking about it. I think Satan must be overjoyed with the state of the church in America right now. I think Satan loves where we're at. Because the church in America is characterized by a lot, by a lot of things, guys, but, but love is not one of them, unfortunately. Um, I want you to think about this. I was thinking about this. It's sobering. Have you ever wondered why God says, in the Bible, God says, I hate divorce? Have you ever wondered why he says that? Hate's a strong word, amen? Why does he say he hates divorce? And I think the answer really does go back to what Ephesians says about the purpose of marriage. Paul's talking about marriage, father, um, or man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and then Paul just comes right out and says it, he said, this is the mystery of marriage. In other words, this is God's purpose for why he created marriage. And Paul says, that's a picture of Christ and the church. And so what Paul's saying, what the Bible's saying is that the primary purpose of your marriage, it's not the only purpose, but the primary purpose of your marriage is not for your happiness. Did you know that? That's part of it. It's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose of your marriage is not for you to have children. But what the scripture just clearly says is the primary purpose of your marriage, listen, is for you and your spouse to be a living, breathing picture 
to the world of God's unbreakable, covenantal, never-ending love from Jesus Christ to us, his bride, the church. That's a picture of what marriage is. That's the primary purpose. And so when two Christians get divorced, when two Christians get divorced, what are they doing? They are breaking apart what was meant to be a picture to the world of the unbreakable love of Almighty God. That's what Jesus said, what God has joined together, you don't break it apart. Because you're breaking apart something that was meant to be a picture of something that's unbreakable. And that's why God hates it. Especially between two believers. That's why Satan loves it. Because it mars the picture we're supposed to be showing to the world of our love for one another. You know something else I'm convinced? That God hates and Satan loves? Church splits. I think Satan loves those things. God actually hates it. Look at Proverbs 6, 16. Proverbs 6, 16 says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And then the writer of Proverbs here gives a list. It says, haughty eyes, that's arrogance, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and then look at the last one, and one who sows discord among brothers. That's fascinating to me. Scripture's laying out the things that God hates, and it's talking about people that shed blood. And then in the list, alongside People that shed blood, God says, hey, you know, there's one other thing that I hate. It's people when they sow discord among the brothers. And so I just want you to know that today. If you're sowing seeds of discord, if you're causing division in the church, God hates it. I didn't say that. Scripture says it. God hates it. Satan absolutely loves it. Why? Because if our love for one another in the church was meant to demonstrate God's love to the people outside the church, then what do you think conflict and division demonstrates to people outside the church? It's not good. There's one other thing I think that Satan loves, and it's this statement, and I hear it a lot, especially in Austin. I heard it all the time. It was this statement that, like, you know, Matt, I love God but I just don't love the church. I love God, but I don't love the church. And if that's you today, I want you to know that I get it. I get it. I've been in the church long enough to know that sometimes the people in the church are not easy to love. I'm one of them. People in the church, even though they're believers, are completely capable of wounding you and hurting you. So I want you to know that I get it. But if that's where you're at, I just want you to, I'm not on a dog yet, I just wanna ask you a simple question. When you were in your sin, were you difficult to love? Yeah, because of our sin, because of your sin, because of my sin, we rebelled against and fell short of the glory of God. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever wounded or hurt God? The answer is yes, all of us have. He was crucified, killed, buried 
because of our sin. You and I were difficult to love. You and I wounded Jesus, but he chose to love you and me anyway. And so if that's where you're at, you say, I love God, I just don't love the church. Well, one, I think we can make an argument that you need to dig a little bit deeper in understanding God's love for you. And two, you really are missing one of the primary callings on your life, not by me, but by Jesus, to love the people here so that we can demonstrate his love to the people out there. And so far, here's what Peter's taught us. One, how we received our salvation. God purified your souls through obedience to the truth. He showed us why we received our salvation for a sincere brotherly love. And the last thing he's gonna show us is the evidence of our salvation. He's gonna show us the evidence of our salvation. Look at 1 Peter 1, 22. Peter says, having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now look at verse 23. He says, since you have been born again. Since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Peter says, the reason you love your brothers and sisters in Christ with a sincere love is because you've been born again. Now, I want y'all to listen real carefully. Don't miss this. This is huge. That phrase, since you were born again, is in the Greek, the present tense of the participle. Now, why does that matter? That's a really fancy way of saying, don't miss this, that there was something that happened in your past, but even though it happened in your past, there are going to be these inevitable, ongoing consequences in your life. So something that happened to you in your past there's gonna be this inevitable results that come out of your life because of it. So without getting too much in the weeds here of what Peter just said, he's not saying you were born again so that you should love your brothers. He's not saying that you were born again so that you ought to consider loving your brothers. He's saying that if in the past you were born again, the inevitable result is that you will demonstrate love. And so what Peter's doing, guys, Peter is presenting love as the evidence of your salvation. He's saying that love really is the litmus test for your salvation. I think every Christian at some point in time in their lives ought to ask themselves the question, how do I know if I'm saved? And if you ask Peter that question, what Peter would say is, you wanna know if you're saved or not? Let's look at the way you love people. That's how you know. By the way, John the disciple gives, gives the exact same litmus test. Haunting verse, 1 John 2, 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. John just said that there are gonna be people that think they're in the light, they're, they think they're saved. There's gonna be people that say they're saved, that you ask them, they say, yes, I'm in the light. But at the same time they're saying, yeah, I'm in the light. I, 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 you ask me, yes, I'm in the light. At the same time, they hate their brother. And what John is saying, if that's the case, then you are not in the light. You are still in darkness. First John 4, 7. 
He continues a couple of chapters later. John says, beloved, let us love one another. Watch this. He says, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's a critical thing. He says, if you're able to love in this Christ-like way, you need to understand, number one, you're born again. Number two, you're able to do that because God gave you the power to do it. Love, that kind of love comes from God. But then in verse eight, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He's making a critical point here when he says love, your ability to love is from God. So he's saying the only people that are gonna demonstrate this selfless, sacrificial, Christ-like love are the people that have received this selfless, sacrificial, Christ-like love. Because that kind of love only comes from God. So here's the question, why? Why in particular is love such an accurate litmus test? Well, one of them is love's from God. Can't love in a Christ-like way apart from Christ being inside of you. But here's the other reason why love is such an accurate litmus test for your salvation. Here's the answer. Because Christ-like love is the only evidence of your salvation in your life that you can't fake. It's the only one you can't fake, okay? A lot of people in the church look at their great doctrine as evidence of their salvation. They think, man, I I know the right things, I say the right things, I believe all the right things about the scripture. But I want you to know that good doctrine, great doctrine is not necessarily evidence of your salvation. You know how I know that? Because Satan has great doctrine. Satan believes that Jesus is the Christ, he's the son of the living God. Satan believes that the Bible is absolutely, positively true. Satan believes that Jesus is the only way to the Father. I could go on and on and on. But hey, last time I checked, Satan ain't saved. A lot of people in the church look at their morality as evidence of their salvation. They go, well, I'm a good person. But the reality is even that can sort of be faked, can be misleading because it's entirely possible for someone to be moral out of tradition or out of loyalty to their family or out of personal temperament or out of this really strong conscience that they have. Even other religions, you think about uh, non-Messianic Jews. You think about uh, non-radical Muslims. You think about Buddhists. These are incredibly moral people, but they're no more saved than the man in the moon. A lot of people look at their good works, the good things they're doing as evidence of their salvation. They, people, all kinds of people fight for justice, give money to the poor, serve the poor, They do all kinds of great things for people, but they do not know the Lord. But love is different. Love is different. Selfless, sacrificial, Christ-like love, it is different because you cannot fake it. It's from God, right? Do you love people that are hard to love? Do you love people that are hard to love? Do you love annoying people? Do you love people that wear you out? Do you love people that disagree with you? Do you love people that are from a different political party? Do you love people that hate you? Do you love your enemies? Jesus is saying, John's saying rather, that that 
is from God. It's the only way you can do it is if you're born again. You can't fake it. It's too hard. I kind of love it's simply too hard. You just won't do it unless you, unless you have been born again. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So this morning, I want you to take a really quick assessment of your life. I wanna ask you a couple questions, tell you one quick story and we're done. Do you forgive people that have wronged you? Just want you to think about that. Do you forgive people that have wronged you? Or do you still carry grudges around? If you do, maybe you've forgotten that if you're a believer in him, it's because he chose to forgive you. Do you love others when it'll cost you something? When it'll cost you financially, when it'll cost you emotionally, when it'll cost you of your time? Does your love for other people, if you're honest, just consist of well wishes? Good thoughts. If it is, maybe you've forgotten that Jesus didn't just wish you were saved, but it cost him everything to save you. Do you find yourself gracious and warm and kind in dealing people that you're in conflict with? You're in conflict, which is normal. And there's a time for righteous anger. But it's the pattern of your life. Do you see kindness towards people you're in conflict with? If you hadn't, maybe you've forgotten that the scripture says that when you were an enemy of God, it was his kindness that led you to repentance. Do you find yourself being a self-righteous person that considers yourself better than other people? If you do, maybe you've forgotten that the King of kings and the Lord of lords humbled himself and died for you on a cross. Are you self-serving or self-absorbed? And you only show interest to people if they have something to offer you. If that's you, maybe you've forgotten that you were dead in your trespasses and your sins and you had absolutely nothing whatsoever to offer the Lord. He left the 99, pursued you, found you, carried you home rejoicing. Do you find yourself, last one, do you find yourself being this distant, standoffish person? If you are, maybe you've forgotten that God in his great love drew you near to himself by the grace of God. If that is a pattern in your life, Sagemont, if that's a pattern in your life and you don't see at least a trajectory of movement towards love, if it's a pattern and you don't see a trajectory of movement towards Christ-like love in your life, then you have to ask yourself, have I received the love of God? Because the Bible is telling us is that if you and I look to the cross, if we look to the cross and we see Jesus dying there for us, we see him shedding his blood and it actually hits you, that's how much he loved me, then the inevitable result 
as that love is gonna come pouring out of your life, okay? Now, some of you may be thinking today, Matt, um, I don't know if I see this kind of love in my life. I, I, I don't know if I love like that. How do I know if I'm saved? Does that mean I'm not saved? Well, the question that I would ask you is a simple one. Do you wanna love like that? Do you want to? Do you you have a desire to love like Jesus loved, but that's just an area of your life maybe that you struggle with. I'm telling you, one of the greatest evidences that the Holy Spirit is inside of you is at least there's a fight. At least there's a desire. If there's a want to, if it's an area you struggle, but there's a desire in you, that's good evidence that you're saved and, and you've been transformed by the love of God. But if you're a person that cannot forgive, if you can't stop hating, if you can't stop being mean and you have no desire whatsoever to change the Bible, not me, but the scripture, the word of God says you're still in darkness. And I would encourage you to fall on your knees today and beg the Lord to save you. Look at the cross, see his nailed, scarred feet and hands and ask yourself the question, if he loved me that much, how in the world, number one, could I not receive it? And number two, how in the world could I not demonstrate it to the people around me? I'll end with this church. Um, I've been thinking a lot about my life lately. Um, Here's why. Over the last 12 months, um, I've lost four really close personal friends to death. And so I've been thinking a lot about my life and I've been thinking a lot about what people are gonna say about me when I die because I've helped buried four people in the last 12 months that I was extremely close to. One of my closest, dearest pastor friends committed suicide a year ago. Still really, really mad at him. Left four kids. One of my other really close friends, who was one of my first friends in Austin, we stayed friends through a long time there in Austin. He was my chiropractor. He moved to Montana, and last year he was murdered. Left four kids. I lost a close friend to COVID. And two weeks ago, my very first deacon at the Austin Stone, my previous church, 43 years old, went in to do just some random surgery, started feeling bad, started getting sick. They go in, they find out he has this super aggressive form of cancer. 24 hours later, he died. Left four kids. got me thinking a lot about my life. It's got me thinking a lot about my death that will come unless the Lord tarries or unless the Lord comes back. And, and, it, and it hit me as I thought about this that there's, if the Lord doesn't return, there's gonna come a day where I'm gonna die and I'm gonna be laying in a wooden box at the front of the church. And my wife and my children and my friends are gonna get up and they're gonna talk about me. They're gonna talk about my life. And they could talk about my preaching. They could talk about me catching a bird. They could talk about books that I've written. They could talk about churches I planted. They could talk about coaching football, all that cool stuff. 
but I found a verse. I came across a verse this week that I really do hope sums up what my wife, what my children, what my friends say about me. And just listen to it. It's in Revelation 2.19. This is Jesus speaking to one of the New Testament churches. And I want you to listen to what he says. Jesus says, I know your works. Jesus says, I've been watching you. I've been seeing the way that you live. And he says, I know them. I know your works. And the first thing he says, your love. And faith and service patient endurance. And I love this last part. It says, and that your latter works exceed the first. I love that. Jesus said, when I'm looking at your life, church, when I'm looking at the individual people of the church and how they lived, here's sort of the first thing that sort of stands out to me. You love each other. You're people of love. And even better than that, he says that your latter works, the way you loved at the end of your life, exceeded the way you loved at the beginning. What an amazing thing to have said about me. What an amazing thing to be said about you and what an amazing thing to be said about us. But far too often, that's not the case. I'm gonna say something difficult here and I don't mean to be rude. I don't mean to be mean. I'm just gonna say something I believe with all my heart is true done a good amount of funerals in my life. And I'll tell you this, guys, there is nothing in the world sadder. And I would dare say there's nothing in the world more pathetic than a funeral of a man that lived for himself and did not display the love of Christ through his life. There's nothing emptier in the world than the funeral of a man of a woman that did not love their wife and their kids and their friends come up and you just see them trying to attribute some measure of something eternal, something of worth to the way that they live, but then they end up saying things like, well, he loved life. And my wife starts grabbing my wrist because I wanna stand up and go, yes, so what? Who doesn't love life? It's my personal favorite. He loved to laugh. Great. And my all-time personal favorite, he loved golf. And that's it. I just always bring so hollow to me. The way I see it, if my friends, my family, if this church can stand up in that day and say, you know what? Man loved his wife well. He loved his children well. And he loved the church well. And more importantly, he loved Jesus well. There's nothing empty about that. And I really do believe that Jesus would say that is a life well lived.